Welcome to the Vets First podcast, a research-based conversation centered around the VA healthcare system, its services, and patients. From Iowa City, Iowa, here's your hosts, Dr. Levi Sowers and Brandon Ray. In this episode of the Vets First podcast, we will be speaking with a VA physician about his experience with treating COVID-19 with veteran patients at the Iowa City VA Medical Center. We will be speaking about the COVID-19 symptomology he has observed in patients and what his experiences have been with treating COVID. This physician's experiences may not be reflective of all VA physician experiences with COVID-19. For the latest science and research on COVID-19, we highly encourage our listeners to consult the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention at cdc.gov, clicking on the All COVID-19 Topics tab, then clicking Science Updates. We hope this episode finds you well. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Vets First podcast. This is Brandon, and today we have Dr. Alejandro Pizzullo joining Levi and I to talk about his experiences with COVID-19 as a pulmonologist, which is a physician that specializes in the respiratory system. We recorded this episode back in August of 2021 during the height of the Delta wave. We thought it'd be insightful to share Dr. Pizzullo's experience and insight with COVID as a critical care provider. I learned quite a bit from our conversation, and I hope you do as well. With that, let's meet Dr. Pizzullo. Welcome back to the Vets First podcast. As always, I have Brandon with me. Hello, everyone. And today we're doing a special episode on COVID-19 and what it means to veterans. And today we have uh, an expert on the topic. Uh, He's an assistant professor from the University of Iowa in pulmonary and critical care. And his name is Alejandro Pezzullo. Welcome to the Vets First podcast, Alejandro. Thank you very much for having me. This is great. Alejandro, um, where are you from? Yep, yep. So, so um, I was born in Venezuela. Um, I, I grew up there and uh, did my initial medical training, medical school in Venezuela. Um, at that point, uh, I became really fascinated with biomedical research and, and um, really the best place to do research in the world, in, in my opinion, is the United States. So, so I found um, a colleague that works here at the University of Iowa, uh, Dr. Joseph Sabner, who is the director of our pulmonary division, um, who actually, he's also Venezuelan. He happened to be the first medical student to go through the same research lab that I trained in in medical school. So that was kind of our connection. Wow, that's cool. um, so, yep, that, that's, that's how I ended up uh, moving to Iowa. Um, I pursued a path that's a little bit different than most other um, clinicians in that since I wanted research to be a big part of what I do, um, I spent close to five years uh, or so um, doing research in the lab as a postdoc, after which I went back to finish my clinical training. Um, oh, wow. So, so, you actually, so did you actually stop your clinical training to do research? Correct. Yep. yep. Oh, wow. So do you have a, so then the question is, you have an MD. Do you I have, have an MD as well. I do not have a PhD. Yep. You're very yep. interested in research. I'm. I'm an. Yep. Exactly. I'm. I'm um, in, in some academic circles, they call people like me uh, late bloomers. Uh, in that, uh, <laughs> we we basically um, uh, uh, the classic way to do this in the states is you join an MD PhD type program. Yeah. Um, but I just that was not kind of available in a way uh, during my training. That's all right, um, Alejandro, so, we need more of you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you're, so, you're one of those people that gets sucked into Iowa and never leaves. <laughs> I love it. I love it here. Uh, yes. That is, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I moved here right after medical school in a way. Uh, I grew up in Caracas, which is, um, you know, it's beautiful in a way in that it has beautiful weather. It's 70s to 80s, pretty much year round and dry, you know, and, and a, a, but there's other issues, you know, and, and, and the biggest issue down there, you may have heard a lot of it is political, let's say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, things are um, really bad uh, down there. Um, but, but really back then when I was finishing my training, um, my, my main goal was actually mostly to, to come and, and train in Iowa um, learn to be a, a serious researcher. Um, but I really loved it so much here that um, I decided to stay. I, 
I'm married um, um, and I want uh, my children are here now. So this is home now. So nice. So my question, why pulmonary medicine? Yeah. Yep. So um, I will say that's partly coincidence and, and partly decisions, you know. So um, when I was in medical school, um, the first couple years, I was not too excited necessarily about the topics in the sense that we just had to, let's say, memorize a bunch of stuff and learn anatomy. And that's cool, but but it's I, I didn't find that particularly exciting. And so during my second year of medical school, I met this um, professor um, who ended up becoming my research mentor and who is the guy that ran a small lab in Venezuela. Um, so he he was a pulmonologist. Um, so he had this um, this lab where, you know, our, our yearly budget was uh, $5,000 and <laughs> we only had one experiment <laughs> that we did. Our experiment is involved... Tiny, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our, our, our experiment involved uh, studying rabbit lung physiology and it was actually a beautiful model. Uh, and then, you know, I didn't know it back then, but my mentor's goal was obviously not to do cutting edge research. He, he mostly wanted us to get inspired and then pursue this, you know. So that was one of my first kind of contacts with pulmonary medicine. Um, for a while, I thought about doing almost every other specialty in, in medicine. But then at the end of the day, um, all of my mentors were pulmonologists and I was very familiar with research in pulmonary. So it kind of made sense. Um, and the other reason has to do with research. So um, other fields of medicine have made amazing advances um, over the past few decades. So for example, now a lot of cancers are considered chronic diseases rather than lethal diseases. Um, they went from using, you know, chemotherapy that kills all cells to very highly selective drugs within, you know, a couple decades. Um, pulmonary is in some ways um, similar to the way oncology or cardiology or other fields were in maybe the 60s and 70s in that um, we're just starting to see an explosion in knowledge in pulmonary diseases. And, and I think that's going to change things over the next few decades. And that made it really appealing to me as a scientist, because you kind of want to be part of, of um, this change in, in, in medicine. You know? So right. yeah. that, that's, that's one reason. The other reason has to do with the, the fact that as a pulmonologist, I get to work both um, in a clinic um, and see patients and get to meet them and follow them over time. Um, but I've always been um, intrinsically uh, interested in severe diseases and the sort of stuff that happens in the intensive care unit, which is more fast-paced and involves more procedures and other things that um, it's a really good combination of um, roles, I would say, in pulmonary medicine. Excellent. So, and then the last question in terms of your background, like why did you, or how did you start doing work for the VA? Yeah. So um, I, I first worked at the VA during my internal medicine residency. Um, um, I, we have a lot of rotations that involve working at the VA. And um, one of the things that I've um, always liked about the VA is that, uh, I would say the number one thing is the, the patients I um, intrinsically enjoy um, talking with veterans uh, um, in that, um, you know, I, I don't like to generalize, you know, but sure. um, the vast majority of veterans that I've talked to are, you know, down to earth people with, uh, um, you know, uh, amazing stories and, and uh, um, uh, very direct, which I personally, you know, I, I come from a culture that tends to be very direct. And one of the hardest things to me when I was adapting to living in Iowa was kind of adjusting my 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 filter and my you know personal space type bubbles and that sort of stuff. 
and and you know at the VA in some in some odd way I felt like it was a lot easier for me to interact with 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 people and it's just very people are very transparent I, I love that actually and and um, I generally enjoy a lot of um, good conversations with my patients which is you know I'm, I'm not there to just have conversations but it's one of the things that makes the job uh, very enjoyable I would say um, the other reason is that um, so so um, over time you know in fellowship we also work at the VA quite a bit and then as a faculty member you can kind of decide how to um, assign your your different duties and roles um, some people do, you know, mostly VA work. Some people do mostly university work. Um, I do a combination. Clinically speaking, I do around half and half. Um, the, the reason I like that is that um, in the, I, I do think that our, our Iowa City VA, at least, I, you know, I'm not super familiar with a lot of other VA hospitals, but I think the Iowa City VA is a really good hospital um, in the sense that they, they work really hard to try to get the clinics well-staffed. They have people that follow the patients in the long-term that help us provide clinical care. And they have amazing nurses, in my opinion. The, logistically, things are, um, I think they work fairly well over there. Um, and, and some things are actually you know, easier. So by virtue of the fact that the university, you know, you, you're dealing with insurances and things like that. Um, sometimes that creates a lot of barriers for patients to have access to certain treatments. Yeah. And that is generally, um, the barriers tend to be a lot lower at the VA and for a lot of uh, available treatments and things like that. So, um, you know, working as a clinician, that aspect of, of the job, um, I, I enjoy doing that over there. Um, and um, so, so that's why I've kept this type of arrangement. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Awesome. Mm -hmm. I guess we should just start at the beginning. What is COVID-19 and, and why is it different from other respiratory illnesses? What makes it worse or not worse or et cetera? Yeah. Yeah, Levi. So that, that's a really good question. So um, viruses have been around, you know, for, for as long as we've been around. Um, the viruses that we're often most afraid of or familiar with are the ones that cause the, the largest numbers of, of illness in the population. And a lot of that, uh, what determines whether a virus is, is, is more, causes more severe disease or more mild disease, or no disease, in part depends on how our immune system responds to it. So um, the current um, pandemic is being driven by a virus called um, SARS-CoV-2. Um, this, uh, this, this virus belongs to a family of coronaviruses, um, which has similarities with, with other viruses that we all face every year okay so um to give you an example if 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 you have children in daycare you're going to be very intimately familiar with uh, almost you know weekly uh, viruses uh, affecting the the your child and the family um, a lot of these viruses are actually what we call seasonal coronaviruses they are um, cousins in a way of SARS-CoV-2 that have been around for much longer and largely because we have been exposed to them um, as, as children um, or, or in, 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 in other contexts uh, and little by little, um, they tend to cause kind of mild disease when you're a child, okay? Um, but then you develop an immune response against them. And then if you're exposed against other viruses from this same kind of seasonal coronavirus family, you develop what we call the, a common cold, just nasal congestion, sometimes a little bit of a fever, but that's about it, okay? Um, the reason why SARS-CoV-2 is so dangerous and has caused such a big uh, problem is that we've never seen it before 
from an immune system standpoint. So our immune system has never seen this specific virus. And most people are seeing it, you know, as, as adults in a way. And what happens is that your immune system is not really prepared to deal with this appropriately. So once you get infected, the virus is able to infect a lot of your upper airway, the nose, the, the throat, then the, the, the lower airways, the trachea, the lungs themselves. And, and you get such a high viral burden that the immune response against it also becomes bad for your lungs. And that is what causes um, a lot of the lethal, let's say, uh, symptoms and, and, and manifestations of this disease. Um, so um, I, th I think a good, a good way to look at it is also how does it compare to other viruses that, that we get vaccines for, for example. So the flu is a, is a good example, right? So um, the flu is a virus that when we get the seasonal flu every year that we have a vaccine available for, um, you know, you, you may get severe disease and people die every year from the seasonal flu, okay? Yeah. Um, but in part because we have at least partial immunity against it, um, the, the lethality of, of that virus is probably five to 10 times less than SARS-CoV-2, okay? Um, so I'll, I'll, in, in other words, a lot of how bad a virus is for a human has to do with whether your immune system is, is ready to deal with it or not. So, you know, you talked about how this, as a species, we've never been exposed to this virus, but we do have an immune system that is really pretty powerful. Yep. Um, and, and you sort of said that this virus, the viral load that happens with, with, with uh, the current coronavirus is, is like really large. And when that happens, it, is it actually detrimental, the, the immune response we have? Is that yeah. what's going on? Is it too yeah. much? That's a, that's a great question. So, so um, um, one way to look at how the immune system works to protect us from viruses um, is to focus on, on, let's say, two phases of the response or two components of the response, okay? So, the, the, um, so suppose that you have immunity against, um, you know, another type of coronavirus or, or influenza or some other virus, okay? So from a practical standpoint, what that means is that your body is already good at producing antibodies that tend to encounter this virus. And you have cells that are specialized in making those antibodies amongst other cell types that the second you are exposed to that virus that you're protected from, um, you have antibodies that bind it, that activates other aspects of the immune response that are really helpful at balancing what happens down the line, okay? So um, the, immune, the immune system, um, you, can, you can almost look at it as having a, a, you know, a component that is harmful against our own cells, okay? And a component that is really good at clearing uh, invading viruses and pathogens and things like that. So when you have a pre-existing immune response against something, you're, the, the good part of the immune system is really good at keeping that under control without having to activate the, the, you know, the second and third line kind of defenses that tend to be more, um, uh, more harmful to your own tissues, okay? So, when, when you're exposed to a virus that you have never mounted an immune response to before, what happens is that the, the race starts, you know? So either the virus will win or you will win, okay? And, and what your body is trying to do is to ramp up any possible defense it has against a virus that it has never seen before, that it does not have good antibodies against, etc. And sometimes that involves um, cells that are just really good at killing other cells in your body, okay? And mm -hmm. when that happens, okay, you get 
the, the severe shortness of breath, the low oxygen, the failing lungs, is basically your own immune system uh, destroying you know, your, your own tissue. And, and that is what creates the need for you know, being in an intensive care unit or being connected to a ventilator, et cetera. Um, so that, that, is, that is why in some ways having a good pre-existing immune response against a virus tends to prevent all of those secondary harmful things that are actually what we call the disease. Okay. A question, Alejandro, then, why is it that, so early on, especially with COVID, um, why is it that some people get so sick that they need to go to the ICU to get put on a ventilator and others don't? Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, that's a really good question. So um, with COVID-19, but also for other respiratory viruses, there are factors uh, intrinsic to either the person, what we call the host, okay? or there are factors related to the virus itself that may determine how severe your disease is. Okay? So for example, suppose that the virus develops a mutation at some point that allows it to evade the immune system better. You know? So that may result in the virus being more harmful to the person maybe more lethal and may cause more severe disease, et cetera. Um, this is actively studied. And in fact, in this era, this is probably one of the first times that we can almost follow in real time how the virus is evolving. And, and it's been an amazing thing to watch. Um, so people are studying that aspect, okay? But another aspect that may be even more important is factors intrinsic to the person or the host that's being infected that affect how you respond to the virus. For example, um, one of the top factors that affect how severe your disease is, is age. So, so in general, the older you are when you encounter the, this virus, the worse your immune response is, the worse the, the, the immune, the, um, the worse the disease tends to become. That's why you have such high mortality you know, it, it can reach uh, uh, upwards of, um, you know, 10, 20, 30% in certain populations. It can, it can get really, really, really bad in some populations. Um, in general, in more, in, in younger people that have no other diseases, you tend to have lower mortality and lower severe disease. Um, but it's still concerning enough that it is higher than, say, seasonal influenza. Okay, so um, there's other factors too. Though. So um, obesity is one thing that is closely related to how poorly you do. The more obese you are, the, the worse you tend to do with the virus. Um, if you have chronic kidney disease or um, very, very, very importantly, um, if you have you know, an, an, a condition that suppresses or dampens your immune system, and you can be at risk for, for worse disease, or if you're having to take medication because you have something like rheumatoid arthritis or, or some other, what we call autoimmune disease, and the treatment for those diseases are drugs that impair the immune system. So, so, so people that are on those drugs may be at, at worse risk of developing severe disease. Okay, so I've got a question for myself. But it, it seems counterintuitive to me that if, if the immune response is really damaging, mm -hmm. having a blunted immune response would be a good thing. So, mm -hmm. so to me, I think we hyper-focus on the pulmonary aspects or the lung aspects, mm -hmm. the, the respiratory aspects of COVID-19, but it's really a disease of like the vasculature, right? Is that true or not true? Yeah, so it, it, is, it is both. So, so it, okay. it's... Um, um, when we have studied um, what what is the main, let's say, tissue of the lung that's that's affected, okay, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of data out of there suggesting that the vasculature, you know, in the lungs and elsewhere is is affected, um, but a lot of it is 
alveolar type of injury the same way you see in any other respiratory virus. Okay. Um, the, the other thing is that uh, the immune system is a very complex um, thing and it has many aspects and many components that work together at different parts of the disease. And which one of those components you are affecting, be it, be it with a drug that the person is taking for other disease, or even in some cases, you may want to control one of those aspects of the immune system, potentially as a treatment for COVID-19. Um, so, so those things are going to affect what the ultimate outcome is. Um, but I would say that in general, a lot of, um, a, a lot of treatments that suppress the immune system it can make the person more susceptible to having severe disease just because of what aspect of the immune system they are suppressing. Interesting. Okay. That's really interesting. So what you're telling us, Alejandro, is you get we have, don't have any previous immune response to COVID-19. Uh, we, if you happen to get COVID-19, you get multiple layers of defense of your immune system that have to be incorporated to combat it. And having that large immune response along with the viral load is what puts a lot of people into the ICU. Um, one of the ways that's different than the flu is we've been getting flu vaccines that help kind of uh, uh, prime your immune system, if you will, uh, to combat against it. And now with not only with the flu vaccine, we have uh, a COVID-19 vaccine. Can you tell us a little more about what the vaccine does slash if I already have COVID-19 and I did not have a bad response and I would have antibodies against COVID-19, why should I still get vaccinated? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So, so in some ways, um, um, one, one of the kind of outstanding uh, um, uh, persisting questions uh, in, in the scientific world is um, what's better? Is it better to have immunity caused by a virus itself, is it better to have vaccine-induced immunity, okay? And there are various aspects of the immune response to the vaccine or the virus that affect what the ultimate decision about, you know, whether to get the vaccine uh, after you've had disease or not is. So for example, um, immunity, can wane over time, okay? Um, immunity against the, the, the virus itself, if you were sick with it, or against the vaccine itself can decrease over time. You may have heard discussion about potentially doing boosters, um, a third dose for some of the vaccines that we have available. And the reason for that is that over time, we have detected that the, the, the effectiveness of the vaccine can start to decrease roughly about six to eight months after the initial dose, okay? Um, so the same thing can happen when you develop immunity to the virus itself. After some time, your defenses kind of decrease, and then you may experience a, a, a new bout of infection, okay? Whether that second infection is going to be a, a lot milder than the first one, uh, or can it become severe, um, you know, is it resulting in a lot of other people getting infected too? Um, those, are, those are all factors that play into whether using the vaccine after the initial infection is, is a, a important or not. In general, we have been recommending that people do get the vaccine, even if you had an initial infection, and for various reasons. So one of them, the one that I'm most familiar with personally is, so, so I work in, in what we call the post-COVID clinic. Um, it's a clinic that we started last year here at the university. Um, and we also have um, a clinic at the, at the Iowa City VA that's uh, following patients that develop COVID and then develop what we call long COVID, you know. So interestingly, a lot of our patients are actually young, healthy people otherwise that have mild disease that a few months later developed 
uh, almost a, a full disability that makes them unable to, to work or do other things. Sometimes that comes in the form of shortness of breath. And sometimes that comes in the form of um, what people call brain fog, uh, which is, you know, people can feel confused, forgetful, um, and it can be very, very limiting. So, so those patients, you know, we, we all, all often talk about, well, should I get the vaccine considering that I already had the disease? And our concern is, well, if you get the virus again, is this long COVID going to get worse? You know, do you have room to worsen once you have long COVID? You know, so so the vast majority of our patients end up deciding to go get the vaccine, and the vast majority of them do just fine with the with the with the vaccine after having had a, a long COVID. And we generally feel like this is helping prevent perhaps worsening long COVID and, and other severe symptoms. And in general, in for the general population, we feel the same way. Even if you had COVID-19, after some time, we always recommend to get the vaccine because in large part, it is extremely effective. And one of the things that, that may get missed in, in discussions about the vaccines is how amazing really these vaccines are especially when you put them in a historical context, right? So um, to, to, to give you an example, so um, most of us have gotten the polio vaccine, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Most of us have gotten the measles vaccine and most of us get the, the flu vaccine, okay? Yeah. So, so um, the polio vaccine, uh, the formulation for it is you, you take the actual virus, the polio virus, okay? And there's some modifications that are made so that it's not, you know, like, like the regular virus that's circulating or that was circulating. Uh, but you take the full virus, the full thing, you inactivate it chemically, okay? You can, there's various ways to inactivate it, okay? But you inactivate it and the hope when you inactivate it is that it doesn't become harmful to the person, but is still able to cause an immune response, okay? You take that whole thing, okay? And you give it to people, okay? And when you think about how this was tested, this was tested, you know, in the early 20th century, uh, they, you know, people were being, uh, communities were being destroyed by, by, by polio, you know, and yeah. you had all of these children having horrible effects from the disease. So people were really desperate for something that would prevent this. And, you know, people said, we need to do these trials, right? We need to go ahead and, 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 and try to solve this problem. So they actually did all of these trials in, in children first, okay? And when you think about the actual act of, you know, taking the full virus, you inactivate it a little bit, and you're going to give it to a bunch yeah. of children. Yeah. It sounds crazy. It sounds it crazy does, right yeah. now, right? But... It's one of the best things that we have done as, as a, you know, in, in, in humanity, in, in, in the scientific and the medical world. You, you, we learned that by doing this, you can almost fully make this polio virus go away. And when we prevented millions of, of, of deaths and disability and sorts of things, right? Same thing goes with missiles, um, you know, millions of children have been saved by these vaccines that are in terms of formulation they sound a little a little scary but they're very very safe and they're fairly effective okay the flu vaccine for example um how is it made so when you actually think about it it also sounds a little crazy you you take millions of eggs every year usually around february march a, a group gets together decides you know, what strains of the flu are we going to try to prevent this year? And then they inject this in all of these eggs and then the virus grows and then you have to kind of isolate it. Same thing, you inactivate it and that's the vaccine, you know, and it's fairly effective. It's, it's a, you know, every year it varies. It can be anywhere between 60, 80% effective or so. And it's also prevented massive amounts of mortality and severe disease and hospitalizations, you know. And then really the, the new COVID vaccines are 
from a scientific standpoint, I think they're one of the most amazing things that have come out of science in the past few decades uh, because of the way they're made and also how effective they are. So, so we're going from older vaccines, you take the full virus, you inactivate it, use the whole thing, and then you hope that it works, okay? The way the COVID vaccines are made is um, we now have, have the ability to very quickly determine the genetic sequence of new viruses, okay? You can take whatever you consider is the most important part of that virus, and you can take that little sequence and you can have a company literally make, it's almost like they're printing out the material, which is RNA, okay? So this virus is made of what we call RNA, which is in, in a cell has DNA. The DNA is used um, as as a, as a as a signal, let's say, to make the RNA, and then the RNA is what is used by the cells to make proteins and other things that that are functional. And so the virus is made of RNA. So. You can take a little snippet of the virus. It's something we call the spike protein, which is an important part for, for the virus to, to infect the host. You have a company make that, okay? That little snippet, it's like a little portion of the virus, okay? Then you mix that with literally salts and, and lipids, you know, like oils, okay? And that's the vaccine, okay? That's it. There's There's no other, you know, uh, weird components. Uh, um, it's 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 literally as if you had gotten the virus, but just a tiny portion of it. So that means that it's not infectious, you know, in, in the sense that it doesn't cause disease. Let's say, uh, and that. Yep. So just random interjection. So those pictures that we always see, representative pictures of coronavirus, and it's that little ball that has the little uh, the prongs coming off the the uh, little. Yep. Those are, it's just one of those. You're not making the whole virus. You're just making that little prong of the virus that. Uh, so yeah. Infected. So so, yep. Yeah, so so the virus, like you mentioned, is is like a little ball, and it has all of the the little prongs that. That's what we call the spike protein. Okay? Mm -hmm. And the spike protein is what the virus uses to first make contact with the the person's cells. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, the vaccine, what it does is that it takes a little portion of the virus genome that's made of RNA, that portion is the one that codes for that prong, the spike protein, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's all we're using, okay? So when you, when you inject that into a person, what happens is that the person's cells start to make only that protein, okay? Um, which you will you will do that anyways if you had the full virus, okay? But you're also making all of the other stuff that the virus needs to to infect you and cause disease. With the vaccine, you're only making the, the spike protein, and that's enough to cause an immune response that is able to neutralize the virus if you encounter the full virus in the future. And to me, the most amazing thing is that when all of this started out. Our, our concern as scientists was not really, um, is this vaccine going to be safe or not, et cetera, in, in part because you always care about that, of course, but the way the vaccine is formulated, it, 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 especially when you compare it to any other vaccine we've had available before, it's, it's very likely to be extremely safe in the, in the long run, just the way it's made. Our main concern was actually more about, will this actually work? Will this be effective? Mm -hmm. So when those numbers came out, you know, these, these vaccines are over 90% effective and over 90% effective. We have very few vaccines that are as good as this one. When you, when you say 90% effective, it's 90% effective at stopping uh, hospitalization, correct? Or what's the, what do you mean by 90%? Effective? Yep. So actually that's a, that's a really good question. They're actually, um, over 90% effective at um, decreasing any symptoms, okay? And they're almost 100% effective at uh, preventing severe disease and death, hospitalizations and death. So they're amazingly effective, really. Um, so so that, that's why 
that's why in some ways it's very, um, I think it's very rational and, and easy scientifically, let's say, to recommend to someone to go get the vaccine uh, because it's really so effective. And, and now we have data from millions and millions of people uh, in the short term. It's proven to be very, very safe. It's, in fact, it's one of the safest vaccines that we have available. And, and we don't know in, in the, you know, we cannot travel in time, right? So we don't have a, a way to predict exactly what the safety profile is going to be many years from now, okay? Five, five but, ten years from now, right? Yeah. yeah, correct. But we can use what we know about other vaccines to try to predict what's going to happen with this one. And just because of the way it's made, because of how effective it is, because of the way it's delivered, and it, it's extremely, I would be extremely surprised if we had some unintended side effects in the long run. And the, the other thing is that, you know, really one, one way to look at, at it is, you know, what are the people that deal with this virus doing, you know? So, so in our hospital, for example, um, you know, we've been working in the ICU last year. We were dealing with this without the vaccine. And we, all of us, were really the first ones to kind of volunteer to be, to be part of the trial. Uh, um, and at this point, over 95 or so percent of people that deal with the virus clinically are vaccinated uh, because we, we know how bad the virus is and, and the data on safety and efficacy of the vaccine is out there. So, so for a lot of us, it was an, an, a relatively straightforward decision. Yeah. So <clears throat> being a pulmonologist, you treat people with COVID-19. Um, if you're a person that gets more severe disease, what does that progression look like? Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, so like I mentioned earlier, so, so I'm, I'm a pulmonologist, right? And, and um, uh, I, I take care of various lung diseases. Um, in practice, though, um, 2020 is the year where a lot of us became basically full-time COVID doctors, okay? Um, so we, especially for a lot of us that work in the intensive care unit, um, and even in the, in the post-COVID clinic, we, we've gotten a chance to see the whole kind of range of, of disease, okay? So um, both at the university hospital and at the Iowa City VA, um, um, I will say, so number one, um, I think we were well supported by our institutions. Um, there was never chaos, okay? The, the ICU worked uh, um, fairly, very well. It was, I would say overall, we, we function as a well-oiled machine. Uh, um, but the, the, the human cause was, it was really tragic, I would say, okay? So um, whenever you get COVID-19 and you progress to the point that you need a ventilator, for example, um, a lot of the damage is already done your mortality may increase to over, you know, 10, 20%. And a lot of that also depends on how, how overwhelmed the system itself is, okay? So here in Iowa City, we had both at the VA and at the university hospital, some of the best outcomes in the country for people with COVID-19. I think part of it may have, you know, part of it has to do with the excellent care that people get from our nurses and our respiratory therapists and, and also the physicians. Um, but I think a lot of it also has to do with the fact that our hospitals never got um, massively overwhelmed. We never had the you know people in the hallways type stuff like, like other hospitals in, in New York or in Europe. And once you start to you know, have the need to house people on a bed in a hallway and, and, and no one can check them frequently, then your mortality starts to get worse and things get really out of control, okay? But I would say despite the fact that we were able to 
maintain our function and 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 keep control of our of our ICU. Um, we dealt with a lot of tragic stories. So, what happens when you worsen is that you know you're almost alone in the sense that um, be, in order to protect family members and the community, you have to institute these visitor restrictions, right? So, so um, if 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 you've had the the, the unfortunate situation uh, of having a family member in the hospital in the past, you know how important it is to be there for them and to talk with them and, and, and yeah, how, yeah. How, how, how big of a difference it makes, right? All of a sudden that's taken away, right? Because our patients cannot be visited. So then you're alone and you have the, the, your nurses visiting you all the time, the doctors visiting you all the time. But one way to describe severe disease um, without being too dramatic, is yeah. um, it's, it's like slowly drowning, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you're short of breath, um, you're trying to control your cough, um, but you may be connected to this breathing tube, right? And it's, it's so bad that we have to keep our patients sedated, right? So that they're not feeling this while they're experiencing this. Um, and then the family is, you know, of course, desperate to know what's happening to their loved one, right? And and often all they can do is, you know, watch them in a in, in a video call, uh, uh, and and it is just hard on everyone. Sure. Um, the the other thing that's that that we dealt with a lot is that, despite the fact that the virus affects older people the worst okay we did have a ton of young people okay so one of the hardest things that we had to do last year is for example talk to children about why their loved one why their parent is is not going to see them again you know mm-hmm. and 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 that is something that had a, a really kind of tragic effect on 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 everyone you know, especially our patients and their families. Um, so it is a very rough thing to go through for our patients. Okay. Sure. And the other thing that sometimes gets missed in, in the in the discussion, right, is that everyone focuses on mortality. Everyone likes to talk about, you know, how, how many people are dying from this virus. Okay. Yeah. Um, but you have to remember that this virus can also cause a lot of disability in the long run. So now we have thousands of people out there that were, you know, very active professionals, uh, uh, you know, teachers, truck drivers, uh, um, all sorts of jobs, you know, that were demanding from a physical standpoint. A lot of those people are not able to do their jobs now because either they got long COVID um, or they got very severe disease while they were actively sick with COVID-19. And then, you know, you go home and you may need to be connected to a ventilator through a tracheostomy, or you may have a tracheostomy, or you may be unable to walk more than a few blocks without getting short of breath, okay? So the, 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 the human and the economic cost of that is is very, very large, even larger than what we talk about when we talk about mortality, right? So, so yes, this, this virus is really hurting a lot of people in a very, very negative way. And, and that's why I, I really think that we should try to use the best tool we have right now, uh, which is really to prevent it, you know, and, and, and there's various ways to prevent it. Um, but I will say that most people do not want to uh, go through this and, and especially ending up in a hospital sick with this. Sure. You know, I think, I think we hear a lot in, in, in the news and wherever on the, the cost to our healthcare providers. Has it been difficult treating COVID-19? Um, so one, one way to look at it is, so, so um, yes, there's definitely a, a, a an emotional, you know, toll on the providers, and and, and a financial toll, uh, and um, 
and that I think that's important, absolutely. Um, you know, last year, uh, my wife was pregnant, for example, and um, I was worried, you know, every day after I came to work, I worried about, okay, is this going to be the day? Is, is, mm-hmm. am, am I, you know, am I going to get COVID-19 now? And I'm, am I going to give it to my family and my parents, et cetera? Um, so we all had these kind of rituals almost where uh, we will arrive home, either shower, you know, douse ourselves off with, you know, hand sanitizer type stuff. Um, and, and sure, that that's important. Um, and that's that's still having an ongoing effect on on many people. I will say, the people that have had to work the hardest um, in, in, in from a healthcare system standpoint is actually the nurses and the respiratory therapists that have yeah. to enter the patient room multiple times a day and that are spending the whole day next to our patients. Um, they are the ones that I think we need to support. Uh, for them to be able to do their jobs, okay? Yeah. That, that's, that's, let's say that's one side of the story, okay? On the other hand though, um, as, as an intensivist and as a pulmonologist, um, we have been trained to, in some ways, you know, try to put our emotions apart um, so we can function, right? If, if I were thinking about my patients, you know, children and, and their family uh, every second of the day as I'm taking care of them, you know, I will be so depressed that I will be unable to, to function, you know. So in some ways, you, we, we are trained to uh, om- almost become a, a machine in a way <laughs> and kind of put your emotions aside, just do the job. And I think we were able to do that in, in, in some odd way um, to me as a pulmonologist it, there was an, an exciting component to this in the sense that this is what we've trained for you know uh, we've trained to to take care of people with severe lung disease um, and I, I try to focus on that I try to focus on yeah. doing the best job we can and I try to celebrate our successes uh, and then move on and try to keep doing our jobs so we can serve our communities um, but yes, there is definitely a big um, um, in mental toll that this has taken on 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 on, on the whole healthcare community. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Alejandro, I think we're getting close to time today, and um, I, I do want to thank you for coming on. I I also appreciate that you like just kept it like just fact based, which is really nice. So yeah, man, um, anytime, guys. Yeah, well, thanks hey, for doing uh, this. Good luck. And we'll be in touch. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Thank you. This concludes today's Vets First podcast. For questions or comments relating to the program, please direct email correspondence to vetsfirstpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.